Idly Hoodly Podcasterinos. I've been very busy lately and didn't have a guest this week, so I thought I'd kind of do what I'd done the last few times previously, talking about meaning and the meaning crisis and the path to redemption, looking at the relationship between cognitive science and religious ideas, uh, attention and alchemy, and also providing a kind of mythic framework for life in terms of potential and actuality, character and wisdom. So I hope it's interesting for you. This is kind of my big project, I suppose, of what I'm working on. And I've been thinking about it a lot lately. So I'm going to do some more work on it and hopefully create something that's useful for people. All right. So I hope you enjoy it. Bo. I wanted to talk about redemption, something that comes up a lot in my thought, something maybe people don't care about, but they do in ways that you don't realize. Seamus Heaney said that all artwork is redemptive. All artwork has to do with making us feel worthy of living. And I mean, that's great for artists that can make things, but what about everybody else? <laughs> what are we supposed to do with all of this life that we've been given? This opportunity before us, like a big blank canvas and, you know, how are we supposed to play the game? What is the game that we're playing? I think more and more that's what people are experiencing. The more self-aware you get, the more you can kind of critique your own functions and saw off the branch that you're sitting on, basically. It's something that I talk about a lot. We've, as a culture in the West, undergone a very radical self-evaluation and thrown out all of the institutions and traditions and stories which actually made our lives make sense so it was a good idea that we threw them away and now we face alienation anomie meaninglessness nihilism and it's not really necessary at all so i guess i wanted to flute around a bit and try and see if i can circumnambulate that particular constellation of ideas and maybe provide something useful for people or at the very least confuse you massively. So, yeah, what's the problem? And it is definitely a problem that we're following here because it's not going to be a particular field. Uh, this problem spans across history, mythology, philosophy, cognitive science, neuroscience, uh, basically everything that you can short of chemistry. Chemistry doesn't really come up except as alchemy. But yeah, we need an answer to the meaning crisis. We need an answer to the anonymity. We need an existential myth that makes sense of our lives. And of course, that's completely at odds with the scientific worldview, which has been prevalent. But the scientific worldview isn't a worldview. So this is kind of the the underlying issue, I suppose, that all of this is built upon, that we had the scientific revolution and the enlightenment, and we just thought everybody was stupid, and we just made this big mistake the entire time, and 
we're just going to get rid of everything that came before us. But that's actually not a very sensible way of doing things. And it turns out it's completely incorrect. We'll deal with that as we go through it. But first, the first idea, I suppose, to come across here is what's called in cognitive science distributed cognition. So distributed cognition is externalizing your mind. So that could be in computers, in phones, in data, but it's also in books, paintings, poems, dances, stories, mythologies, rituals. These are all ways of externalizing our mind and creating it so that the individual who comes along can walk into it and can go, oh, okay, I can learn something from this. It, you're taking what your knowledge and putting it out into the world. Distributed cognition sounds very sciencey for like cave drawings and things like that, but the underlying idea is here is that human beings have been engaged in this project since the start of our conception. That we became self-aware at a certain point and had to grapple with the fact that we were self-aware and that that came along with this impulse to create and to externalize and to try and make sense of what we're doing through stories and myths and rituals and that that's a fundamental problem that you're not just born knowing what to do i mean on some level you get this kind of evolutionary survival kit called your emotions which push you towards pleasure and push you away from pain. And if you want to, you know, turn that up a notch, you can end up with a kind of hedonism or a, what is it, Epicureanism or something like that. But it's not a particularly functional philosophy because life involves both. And generally, most religions seem to try and build a path that's higher than that. So you get your basic cable philosophy, which is attracted to pleasure, stay away from pain. Well, we've got this problem, you know, how do we act? What do we do? And it turns out that that's even more fundamental than how do we act. It's really how do we see? Because there's an infinite number of ways to look at an object. This is the framing problem in robotics. It turns out the environment that we live in is so complicated that we don't even perceive objects. We do what John Bernanke calls relevance realization. Relevance realization is basically that we specify what matters and what doesn't matter. And we perceive things according to our goals and our functions rather than the things in and of themselves. Now that's a bit of a ham-fisted explanation of relevance realization. And if you do want to check out John's work, it's a lot more complicated than that. But as I said, I'm a bit of a roughneck and I'm trying to do something here. So that'll have to do for the moment. Um, but this relevance realization that's fundamental to being able to act as a human being comes laden with certain values in it. So you can't even pay attention without values. You can't see. For you to pay attention to one thing, it has to be your highest concern at that time. And even as you're paying attention to, say, the words that I'm saying right now, there's probably another part of you that's trying to listen more or that's trying to listen away, that's trying to zoom in or zoom out or that's thinking about what you're having for dinner. And it requires a certain amount of effort to hone in on that attention. That reason might be because you're interested in the question that I'm interested in, that you're trying to find an answer to it as well by listening to these words. But that's a goal. And so the reason you pay attention is because of this goal. 
So how does this factor in then to the spirit or to this distributed cognition that exists? The distributed cognition is part of the conversation that humans have been having since the dawn of our intelligence to try and figure out that problem of how should we act. This has been encoded in cultural artifacts, stories, myths, dances, everything, but it's still dealing with the same fundamental problem, though the language might be different. And there's a lot of different, I mean, I, I, I'm not well versed enough to be able to go through all of the different options, but the one I suppose that I've chosen here, which is kind of an interesting one, is alchemy. Probably haven't heard of alchemy. You might recognize it from Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Philosopher's Stone is the goal of alchemy. It is the holy grail, basically, of alchemical work. And we'll explain a little bit more about that. But the main thing is that we have this issue of how should we act? And the issue of how should we act is really an issue of how should we perceive? And then the issue of how should we perceive is really an issue of how do we value the world? How do we, what goals do we have? And those goals come partially built into us, which are called personalities. I mean, you're, if you're an extroverted person, you'll have certain goals. If you're an introverted person, you'll have different goals. They're part of your bioeconomical system, which is states if you're going to be cost adverse or if you have lower cost of energy, so you're more likely to, let's say, you know, talk to everybody at a party or you're less likely to go, eh, what's the point? It's to do with reward sensitivity. But the work of redemption is coming to the end of this line and somehow living in accord with an ideal that makes you feel worthy of life. Now, how we can do that without engaging with the work of the past, without engaging with the spirit of distributed cognition, is impossible. As I kind of touched on earlier, you're going to end up with this basic cable philosophy that you get. You could call it your biological philosophy, one that values status, pleasure over pain, you know, and you'll just kind of increase the volume on it and it won't ever really satisfy you. Because what you're hungering for beyond that is, you know, man can't live on bread alone. It's the spiritual bread that you're hungering for rather than just your, you know, other types of sandwiches. But this, this is a perennial problem. This issue of being a human being that is born and that faces this complex environment that has to adapt to it and overcome self-deception and self-destruction towards a particular goal or aim of development. Because development isn't optional. It's not like you can say, I don't want to, you know, get old and die. <laughs> That's, it's a given. There is, there's no two ways about it. But the real question is, you know, what do you do on the way there? What will make it worthwhile? What would be the optimal path that you can pursue? And the argument would be that when you're living meaningful, when you're experiencing meaning, you're on that path. And you'll hear this a lot. I mean, in Christianity, you talk about God being the way. You hear about that all the time. The yin and yang symbol, order and chaos. The S down the middle of it is a deeply alchemical symbol. That is actually represented as a river of mercury. And we'll talk about mercury as well, because that's actually very important. 
but that that river between them is the border between chaos and order and that that's where meaning lives. That's where your attention is drawn to, away from what you know to what you don't know. And that to live there in between that place is to live a life well lived. Which is, I mean, I couldn't make that up. (laughs) So I suppose first and foremost, if you think you're going to get away with living a meaningful life without dealing with any of these ideas or without, as Socrates would say, living an unexamined life, you are shit out of luck, my friend. So we have this idea of interacting with the distributed cognition of the past, becoming a part of the conversation that has gone on for human beings since the dawn of our self-consciousness. This is also called the logos. And so there's an interesting idea that the that each individual has this ability, has this logos in them, which is this connection to the transcendent noose, as it's called in Gnosticism, or the, the world spirit, you could call it as well. But it doesn't need to be even that abstract. Like if you think about it, there's, you have all of these great people of history. So you read Shakespeare, you read Socrates, you read Plato, read whoever, and when you read one of them, you can abstract from that their ideas and you can have a representation of them. And then if you read enough of them, you can abstract what's common between all of them and then you have a representation of all of that. So the idea is that the Logos is the abstracted representation of that entire creative canon of human experience that has gone on since the beginning of our conception. And that that voice speaks within you. So whenever you interact with that type of material, it enlarges the Logos in yourself and in, I mean, in ancient Greek philosophy, this is the daemon. This was Socrates had one, Plato had one. In other words, it could be your conscience, the voice that speaks within you and that it's not perfect, that it's kind of flawed and needs to be fed properly. So it needs to be fed this rich information from the distributed cognition and that in turn builds the inner representation of this spirit that can guide you to the path of redemption. So now we're getting a little bit, now maybe we're seeing some connections here in this strange morass. This idea that there is a a connection through all of human history, that there has been this kind of linear development of something not necessarily just material progress or something like that, but an emergent idea, uh, a golden thread that goes back, stretches into ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia and Jericho and the first cities down into the tribes and shamanism and that kind of beginning world of mankind and darkness and fear and then coming back out into ancient Greece, into Plato, into the Bible, into the Middle East, and all the way through modernity, that we've actually been doing something this entire time. That we're working on these perennial problems that affect everybody. And that this is truly a cosmopolitan effort. And that you as an individual can take part in that by learning the great. This is the ideas of the humanities. This is what the humanities was supposed to be. It was supposed to educate you into this spirit of mankind and art and literature and culture at large. But obviously, as we've had this radical critique of culture, 
we at the same time have cut ourselves off from the deep wisdom that would connect us to that perennial tradition and give context for our own lives. So, you know, sawing off the branch that we're sitting on. Yeah. So when you build a representation of the personality of those great thinkers and you build that representation and then you abstract from that other representation from more and more thinkers and the more you've learned, the more you can abstract from it, then you have a personality that lives inside you and that can guide you on this journey because as we talked about, it's incredibly complex. You're incredibly complex. You're an incredibly unique individual. So it's very hard to give people advice on how to live when each person's life is unique and yet there is common aspects that we all face. The same system, the relevance realization system, that allows you to perceive reality, that allows you to say, you know, if you've got a, a cup in front of you, you can see the handle, you can see how it works. You have in your mind this idea of a cup. You know what to do with it already, which allows you to interact with it. If you're a baby and you see a cup, it's not really a cup. It doesn't have that, you know, structural, functional organization that you can interact with yet. That has to be learned. And all of those skills are are part of how you actually perceive the world. Without those skills, you don't see that way. And so that perceptual system, which you use to separate what matters from what doesn't matter, biases you to what you can see and what you can't see. That means that self-deception is built into what it means to be a human being. You can't, the same system that allows you to perceive and act in reality makes you self-deceptive. So it's a framing problem. And you could say then the answer to that is be able to change frames, to be able to change the what it is that you're seeing in the world. So this kind of leads us into attention. The connection between cognition and human personality is attention. As I mentioned, you know, to pay attention, you have to do precision weighting. You have to privilege certain predictions over others. And you have to focus in on what is of your highest concern. Now, this is partially down to your personality, the way your genetics and your uh, social environment shape your personality will make it less or more likely that you'll be rewarded for certain things. But attention is, is an interesting subject because it's kind of anarchic. You know, as you're listening to me now, you might be trying to zoom in on my voice. You might be trying to zoom out at the same time. You might be, you know, partially your attention's going to what's outside or what's over there or what's, you know, you're going to have for dinner later. So attention has this kind of anarchic element that it just floats around and does what it wants. So the, the issue has been, how do you unite that? How do you get attention to focus on one thing? And then how do you get everybody's attention to focus on one thing? I mean, it's a crazy problem. And you see nowadays with the attention economy that there's so much competition for attention. Attention really is the resource. It's like if you had everybody's attention, you could get anything done. So attention is like... It's the big thing, really, isn't it? It's the, the raison de raison d'etre. But the, how human attention works is fundamentally goal-driven. 
what you pay attention to is of your highest concern. And there's no way of removing that really. But that shows then the connection between values and cognition. So that your your cognition, your the way you pay attention in the world is directly related to what you value most. And obviously we talk about values, that's the, you know, the school of religion. So Orthodox Christians would say that what you pay attention to is what you worship and that there's no way to get rid of that because your attention is always focused on your highest concern. So then the real question is, what should be of our highest concern? And there's been a lot of different answers to this question. This is what the golden thread is about. Again, that question of how should you act is also a question of how should you pay, what should you pay attention to? What is most important? What is it that matters most? And that changes all of the time. And it's partially, you know, our biology that we need. It's partially our social. It's that Malthusian kind of hierarchy of needs. But maybe we can dig a little bit more into attention and, you know, how it works underneath a bit. The Greeks conceived of attention as the the Greek god Hermes. You might recognize Hermes. He's the guy with the the winged shoes and he always flies around. Hermes is a messenger of the gods and a psychopomp, which means that he was a bridge between the world of the underworld and the human world. In Jungian psychology, that's between the conscious and the unconscious mind. So that for Jung, attention had this fundamentally developmental aspect. Jung thought that you paid attention to your, to what would he looked at it almost as a, a four-dimensional thing, that what you paid attention to was actually your future self trying to call itself into being. This is something I've talked about previously on podcasts. But Jung had this developmental theory of um, attention, that what you paid attention to was actually a way of you trying to catalyze your future self. But that attention is fundamentally a tricky subject. And the Greeks knew this. This is why Hermes is the son of Maya. Maya is illusion. And Hermes is a trickster god like Loki or one of those other ones. But he was fond of tricking mortals, although he was ultimately considered a friend of human beings. This is very true of attention. Sometimes we find things salient to us that are unhelpful, that are, you know, we get obsessed with things that turn out to be nothing. But in Jung's view, he said there was no you know, it all led somewhere. It was all a way, if you paid attention to what you were paying attention to, it would tell you about who you wanted to be. It it would tell you about who you were becoming. There's an interesting overlap here, as I mentioned, which is Hermes is the father of alchemy. And alchemy is the forerunner of early science. There was a lot of interesting things actually came out of alchemy, like alcohol, gunpowder. They made a lot of these weird discoveries. But it was a a hermetic tradition which began after the fall of the Roman Empire in a time that was actually not too dissimilar to where we're at now. This huge kind of massive meaning-making structure of the Roman Empire that kind of made sense of everything had just fallen apart and people were becoming suitably nihilistic and confused and trying to rebuild that or refined, you could even say, the connection to that golden thread to remake a meaning-making structure that people could live within and a path to redemption. 
And this is the kind of confused cultural landscape which alchemy emerged out of. Now, generally what alchemy was concerned with was, so turning lead into gold. Um, there's different arguments about this. I mean, the Jungian idea is that alchemists were, they were psychologically projecting on the material. So at that period of human development, we hadn't sec- separated the subjective consciousness from the objective world. There wasn't a delineation between that. So it became a, a an activity for them where they were trying to turn the base lead into gold, but which was actually a, as Jung took it, a metaphor for consciousness. Gold is the philosophical gold, but it's the philosopher's stone that allows you to do this. You might recognize that from Harry Potter. The philosopher's stone is a kind of hyper object that could turn anything. You could do anything with it. If you wanted to fly to the moon, you could turn into a spaceship and go there. If you wanted to have a shower, you could hold it over your head and water would fall out. You know, if you wanted to skateboard, you could put it on your feet and it would skateboard. It was this all-in-one material. You might recognize it actually as the inspiration for technology, which is interesting. And it's it, it's interesting that alchemy turned into science. I mean, the types of experiments that these alchemists were doing were initially where a lot of early chemistry would have come from, but also just a lot of the thinking and scientific method were built into it. So it's, while it was a mystical tradition, it also had this kind of um, rigorous element to it. There was all these rules and things, principles that they had to follow, which was obviously important because they didn't want to blow their face off while they're messing around with the uh, chemicals. But generally, the the function of alchemy was about the alchemical marriage, the union of reconcilable opposites, to create this philosopher's stone. Um, the link between Hermes as attention and this alchemical process of development, which was initially a physical one, but which Jung took as a, a, a psychological process, is a really interesting kind of note that there's a, the developmental aspect of attention that Jung sees is represented in alchemy. He called it the process of individuation. How an individual became essentially who they were going to be. And that there was a sort of end goal to that. As we said earlier, you know, the fundamental problem of a human being is how should I act? And another question of, you know, what should I pay attention to? But that's also a question of what should I value? I mean, an idea that's kind of emerging here is religious systems as a scaffold for attention. Attention is driven by a lot of unconscious forces which we're not in control of. What we talked about with the zooming in, with the zooming out. And so it requires this conscious system, like a religious system, in order to shepherd your attention. Like, I'm going to be distracted all day unless I specify what I'm doing. And in order to specify what I'm doing, I have to specify an aim. And that's what religion is about. How should I act? What's the highest good? How do I work towards it? So in the olden times, this would have been what the whole panoply of gods was. 
You'd have representations of mercy, of anger, of love. If you wanted love, you prayed to, you know, um, Aphrodite, or if you wanted wisdom, you played to Athena. And this is how you directed your attention. This is how you you bargained with the unconscious forces, the emotions and values that were driving your attention by representing them externally as gods. And you bargained with them in order to have some ability to negotiate between the emotions. So these gods, this, these gods were representations of what we would think of as emotions or motivations or affect, which is actually what constitutes personality and what sets goals. If you read any personality neuroscience, that, that will become very obvious that that's actually fundamental beneath cognition. And there is an emerging connection between those, I believe, that I haven't, you know, I doesn't really seem to have come to fruition yet but i think that's probably the next big thing um but the in order to negotiate between the motivations and the affects and the emotions you needed this con these conscious representations of the gods which allowed you to do so jung looked at the western mind the enlightenment rational as something that was built on the back of this much deeper process, that we had to discipline our attention so, for so long with these ancient traditions before we could actually even be a, in a position where we could invent something like the scientific method, that it just simply wouldn't have been possible because our attention was so fragmented between all of these different drives. And that's what monotheism represents. Monotheism represents out of the panoply of possible motivations, emotions, and values, the, what emerges out is one overarching value. This is why God is the way. And you constantly hear these strange metaphors for that aren't like quite a personality or quasi like a, a personality and also a journey. So the, the emergence of monotheism from that represented an abstracting of a higher order moral principle from the competing morass of all of the other gods and this even happened i mean this happened for an individual in ancient egypt which was like geez i can't remember his name it's akin something akinin but um he came to the conclusion of a personal god called aten which he revolutionized ancient egypt with but that this was one god above all gods it's a kind of i mean you think about it the king of kings jordan peterson always talks about this that the king if you had a a bunch of kings and you took what was common to all of them and abstracted it you would then have the king of kings because it's what's common to all kings and that that's what god is in a sense god is the spirit across time that's been abstracted and represented and is too complex for an individual to grab but has been kind of emerging as part of this golden thread um which is an interesting art i mean We'll probably touch on causality here at some point as well because that's quite important. But um, Terence McKenna looked at hey man, I love Terence McKenna because he's just such a wild card. Like, but um, he looked at time as something that wasn't being it wasn't this like causality like dominoes like the big bang came hit one thing hit another thing hit another thing and it just been hitting things since the start of time. He thought we were being pulled towards something. He, um, in his, it was, there was the transcendental hyper object at the end of time. And that this was something that we were actually being brought towards. And 
that we were actualizing, basically. He looked at all of our technological progress, our cognitive progresses, building towards something, which would be, you know, in his view, the realization of God on Earth, I suppose. Um, which, I don't know about the metaphysical reality of that, but it's a pretty fucking cool idea, I must admit. Um, I don't know where I was going with that tangent, I was a mile off. But um, yeah, those religious systems and the development of monotheism out of it as a cognitive step forward, an abstraction of a higher order moral principle that we could follow. Um, now, while we don't, you can say you don't believe in that, but you, you, your concerns might be the same as the concerns of, say, a Christian or somebody, uh, whatever it might be, are we've gotten to the point where we've been able to get rid of the artifice of the church, but we still have the underlying value system. But then it becomes confused because we don't really know where it came from, which is why you have this radical critique of institutions and things that we've taken for granted since, you know, since ancient times, because suddenly you go, wait a minute, why am I doing any of this? This doesn't make any sense at all. And that's because you've actually just lost touch with the the golden thread of human cognitive development that has led you to that point. I mean, you could argue against it and say that it was a mistake or that we've fucked up. And I mean, you could probably make a good case for it. But um, I guess what I'm just trying to illustrate here is the the golden thread through our development that has gone on collectively in our distributed cognition, which is beyond just the individual and the civilization and seems to travel between them. I mean, there's an interesting, like Christianity was able to unite all these different religions. It was able to take over them, but not just to take over them, to integrate them into the religion. And that was because it was at a time where it was becoming noticed that there was the commonalities between religions. I mean, Dionysus, when the cult of Dionysus met Judaism, then it became Jesus in a sense. So there's there's a development there in representation that became common across different religions. Um, obviously, there's still not agreement in it, but that's because we have this problem of how should we act and the religion is a, a way of positing a highest value which dictates how you'll act in accord with it. And I mean, I don't know if we're ever going to fix that or get any unity to it, but I guess what I'm trying to do is explain how it, how it functions. So yeah, the the religious system carved up the world in a way that you could act in it so that you could control your attention enough to be able to do what you had to do in a way that felt meaningful. The same way that language divided the world up into objects, the religious gods divided the world into a form for action. So yeah, I mean, we could go into how we do that in the modern world, but I don't know if it's really relevant for this particular uh, issue. So we're talking about organizing attention and that in organizing attention, you have to posit a higher order value. So I've been thinking about this a lot. I mean, what would be the highest value? And it's not an easy question to answer. Naturally, I have to defer to a higher authority. The Greeks saw character. Character is the highest good because really wisdom was the highest good in virtue, but character was how you cultivated 
wisdom across time. Aristotle had this idea called the golden mean, which was part of his system of virtue ethics. And the goal of virtue ethics was character. It's also similar to Carl Jung's theory in that the goal of his is individuation, which is the person who you could be. It's the same idea. The point is that you you are meant to live in accord with your values to actualize your highest potential. What those words mean, there's a lot in it. But the golden mean for Aristotle is a way of figuring out what is a virtue and what is not. So to give an example of that would be, you know, if there's, uh, is running out in the middle of the road in front of cars to impress your mates might look like courage, but really it might be foolhardy. If somebody's fallen in the middle of the road and they can't get out, you not going out and helping them might be cowardice. Whereas if it's a situation where you can go out there and you can help them, that would be courageous if you do it. So through this too much, too little, you figure out what the virtue is. And you can do this with not just courage, but with love, with wisdom, with temperance, with every value, you can find the golden mean in it. And what the golden mean is set up then is they're set up as constraints, and these constraints are what make up your character. They tell you how to act. And you, if you think about it, if somebody says you're acting out of character, they mean it as a you're not living up to your potential. You're not being who you usually are. You're, you're not adhering to your own internal constraints, which you usually do. So cultivating character is cultivating these internal constraints by paying attention to your actions and to the results and to right and wrong and developing a character as a result of it. It requires experience. But in Aristotle's worldview, it is this character that regulates your development and growth towards wisdom. To return again to the cognitive science, characteristics are the limits on the way that you perceive reality to avoid combinatorial explosion and to overcome the framing problem. This is difficult and requires a relationship with the logos, with the inner spirit of mankind in order to figure it out because human beings have been doing it since the dawn of time. I think this is the redemptive work of being a human being. And there's something that lies behind it that you can't, it's not, it's not a thing I could explain here. Maybe you could do it in a story. Maybe you could do it in a play. But certainly not this way, I don't think. Maybe. But you could, it's that you have to fall in love with life again. Nihilism is just being out of love with life. It's not a rational position. It's not a rational argument. It's, it's about fundamentally feeling bereft. And there's no fact or factual information that's going to change that. But what will change it is again falling in love with life for experiencing gratitude, appreciation, connection, all of those things that we consider the opposite of alienation, being forsaken, being nihilistic, being meaningless. And they're emotional. It begins with that emotional shift that life is something worth living. And then you can begin to do the redemptive work. This has been a scattershot 
at something that's impossible to describe and which I'm utterly ill-equipped to do. Hopefully, I will be able to get better at it. But really the main point, the main takeaway is that there is redemption for those that want to work towards it. If you want to live in accord with those values that you find in life and realize the potential of who you could be by paying attention to those values, then there is redemption for you and there is satisfaction and appreciation and meaning. And that's pretty revolutionary. Nobody told me that. And that's what I think is missing. That's what the void is. It's this path that's hidden, the golden thread. It's hidden in, in history and philosophy and it's, it's become muddled up in science and all these different areas and it's coming together. I think that's the good news. That's the good news is that we we might be tying it together and I hope this has managed to make some connections for you and so that you can fall in love with life and begin to do that redemptive work that's so important. Boom. Oh.